All right, if you'd like to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, we'll finish up this chapter today. All right. <clears throat> Let me close that real quick. Well, man, I've been a little merciful today. I've, had, I've created a little bit shorter of a sermon today so that you can have some more extra time uh, with your family today. So we won't have the normal 50-minute. And, and honestly, I, I apologize. Some of the weeks have been over 50 because uh, I just get carried away. So we'll, we won't do that today. So you can uh, rest assured some of you will get back in time for a game. All right, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, last week, we looked at the first uh, half of this chapter. Uh, Paul is expounding upon uh, agape love. And I, I mentioned uh, that last week that this is a chapter that's often called the hymn of love because it's so eloquently written. Um, it's, uh, and, and it's called that also because it's the most comprehensive study we have uh, in the Bible on love. And uh, so if you missed last week, I do encourage you to go back and listen to it because uh, as we look at the, that passage, it's, it certainly is a challenge to us uh, in terms of agape love and what we're called to, to live up to. And that's for all of us, all believers. And we, we have four points that Paul's covering in here. We only looked at the, the first two points last week, and I'll just sort of recap here. The first point was the prominence of love, the prominence of love. And Paul began by speaking in, in, in hyperbole, ex- exaggerated language to make a point, and he gave three examples to illustrate uh, how love is prominent and, and the prominent role it, ha- it should have in a church. Uh, he talked about if he could speak in all the languages of men and fluency of men and even of angels, but if love were absent from that gift, then he would really produce nothing ultimately. He talked about the gifts of prophecy and knowledge of faith, and he says you take those gifts to their extreme, but you exercise those gifts without love, you, you are nothing. And then you looked at just the life of a believer. If you, you know, are a benevolent Christian and you gave everything away to feed the world and you even sacrificed your life, but you did that without the motivation of love, that you gain nothing from it. So we looked at that a loveless person produces nothing, he is nothing, and he gains nothing. And so love is certainly the needed element. And clearly love then is not a, a prerogative of the few, right? But it is required of all believers. We should all possess that kind of love. And so then he launched into the properties of love. We looked at 15 properties of love just to help us better understand what that love is. And we don't have time to review those today. Like I said, you can go back and and listen to that. But they are found in verses 4 through 7. So uh, there was uh, established what love is. And so today we're going to look at the second half of the chapter and at Paul's two final points, the permanence of love and the preeminence of love. And we're starting in verse 8, and we'll read down through 13 to begin. Verse 8 of chapter 13, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three But the greatest of these is love. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you once again for the opportunity to come to this amazing chapter. We do pray that your spirit would guide us into this uh, chapter on love, Lord, that we might uh, fully understand, uh, Lord, uh, the, the, the importance of love, Lord, uh, how needed it is, Lord, to be the predominant element of our lives. And so, Lord, just bless our time as we study your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's launch into this. We uh, see here, first of all, the permanence of love, that love is going to be permanent. And we see it in verse 8 with the first three words, love never fails, right? There it is. Love never fails. Uh, this word fails is an interesting word. It's ekpipto, which is just fun to say, ekpipto. Um, and it can mean to fall out of or to fall down from or to fall off. And it's used all those ways throughout scripture. You talk about a leaf that fa falls and withers and decays. This is the word that is used. And so uh, what is Paul's point here when he says love never fails? Love will never wither and decay. Uh, love will never fall away uh, because it will be, remain permanent. It will never be destroyed what it doesn't mean is that love will always be successful. Uh, this idea the world perpetuates is that love conquers all, right? Just watch a uh, Disney movie, love conquers all. Uh, but when the reality is that love doesn't conquer all, uh, because love doesn't conquer the human will. The Holy Spirit has to penetrate the human will, but love doesn't do that. And the greatest example of that is Jesus Jesus, right? He, he was love. He came and demonstrated love, and yet he was betrayed, and he was denied, and he was mocked and scorned and tortured and killed. So love didn't conquer all there. It did in the spiritual sense in that his act of love offers forgiveness to us, but it didn't penetrate hard hearts, did it? And it still doesn't, right? People still can be hard to the gospel. The Holy Spirit has to penetrate that. So when we talk about love never failing we're not talking about it always being successful, right? We talked about the hard challenge it is to love because you can be vulnerable when you love. You can be hurt, but you're called to do that. We're also going to realize that sometimes love doesn't give us the results that we are hoping for. So really, love never fails. It's not about the supreme power of love, right? Like the songs talk about. The love that has this type of effect on a, on a person. It's about outlasting things and enduring forever. That's the idea here. So love will never guarantee success. But I will tell you, um, spiritually speaking, only true spiritual successes can be accomplished with love. You, you can't, right? We can't do it without love. So we have to have love. And that's the love that he talked about in this passage that endures all things and hopes all things and believes all things and bears all things. So listen, we, we do live in an imperfect world. And spiritual gifts, while they are great, and they're, they're, they're here to aid us during this imperfect time. We don't live in a perfect time. So we won't be needing certain things in the future, but we will need love. Love will continue e eternally. It will never perish. And so love being permanent, Paul illustrates that truth by comparing it to three spiritual gifts that are impermanent. They won't remain. And he lists prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. He says this, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. And whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, here's where I know all the, the Bible scholars want to dig in and go, ah, okay, here's where, here's where we get to it, because uh, 
people who support cessationism, which is just the idea that some gifts have ceased cessationism, uh, they'll go to this uh, verse and they'll get their argument from, from here. And I just want to walk you through really, really briefly where they, where they get that from. Uh, each of these gifts are mentioned as failing in some way, right? And, and that's to contrast love that never fails. So the, the, the verbs that go with these are to contrast that. And Paul uses different Greek words. So this is where that comes from. And I'll just show you these real quick. Pro- prophecies. When he says prophecies, they will fail. He uses a different Greek word than he did with love. Remember that was ekpipto? That's why I made a joke about it. So you remember it, ekpipto. This is a different word. It's kartageo. Kartageo. And here's, here's the range of, of things that this can refer to, to render idle or inactive or to cause to cease or to put an end to. That's kartageo. And he uses that with prophecies, okay? So mark that in your head, different Greek word. When he looks at tongues, now my Bible says they will cease. The reason that translation is there because he uses a different word. It's powo, and that is to restrain or quit or desist or also come to an end. Now, when you look at those, they're pretty similar meetings, aren't they? I mean, they kind of could somewhat overlap. And then when he uses knowledge, he says it will vanish away. We go back to kartageo. It's the same Greek word there. So the same Greek word kartageo is used for the fate of prophecies and knowledge, Okay, but a different word for the fate of tongues, powwow. And so what they do, they say, oh, so they have different fates then. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate, right? He wants us to know, hey, uh, this will have this fate and this will have that fate. And then they continue down that scholarly road. They, they note that that word cease related to tongues um, is in the middle voice. It's not passive and don't worry about all that stuff, but that's what they say. It should be translated then tongues will stop by themselves. And so they jump to this conclusion that tongues have ceased at this point, and they stopped at, after the apostolic era. So after the apostles sort of died away, tongues died away too. Now, here, here's my stand on this. Regardless of passive voice or middle voice and all that, it doesn't suggest to us here when tongues will cease. We can't make that leap. The passage does tell us when all three will cease, and they tell us in verse 10. And we'll look at that in a minute. And he says, all of them will cease. But these people will say, well, tongues cease because you can't say that knowledge has ceased, right? Because knowledge must continue. And so you have a problem there. Here's my thing. I just think this unnecessarily complicates what Paul is trying to, to communicate here. And I think it's rather simple. I don't think we need to go and muck it all up. In using will fail, will cease, will vanish away, that's the three ways he says it, right? I don't think he's trying to communicate prophecies, tongues, knowledge, all have different fates. And let me tell you when those are. He's simply saying the same thing in three different ways. This is a very eloquent uh, chapter. And if you were to write, um, you know, love will never fail, but tongues will fail, and this will fail, and that will fail. It's just redundant. It's not great writing, right? And I don't think this would gain the reputation it has earned over time if he had written that way. I think he's trying to write well. Paul wrote with an amanuensis, right? That's the guy who writes for him, and Paul is just talking. I'm sure that guy put his pen down when Paul started 1 Corinthians 13. It is jarringly different, isn't it? To the point where some people think that he wrote this at a different time, completely unrelated to 1 Corinthians, and then it was just popped in here, which is ludicrous because of what he's talking about. He's actually talking about these gifts, right? Because it's so different the way he writes it. Here's one uh, New Testament commentator, and he says this about this section. 
He says, there's virtually no distinction between the two Greek verbs that describe the termination of both prophecies and tongues. I mean, even they're different words, but you look at the, the definition, they're very similar. True, he says, the verb with the prophecies in the, is in the passive voice, uh, which um, implies that the believers are the agents, but the verb with tongues is interpreted as the active voice, and the difference is really only stylistic change and nothing more. Overall, what is Paul's point here? Well, Paul is trying to make a point that love will never fail. They're clamoring after gifts, right? Oh, and this gift is the greatest. This is, he's like, listen, those things are going to be done away with. They're going to be gone, but love will never fail. John Wesley said this, love never faileth. It accompanies to and adorns us in eternity. It prepares us for and constitutes heaven. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. When all things are fulfilled and God is all in all. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. One language shall prevail among all the inhabitants of heaven, and the low and imperfect languages of earth be forgotten. The knowledge, likewise, which we now so eagerly pursue, shall then vanish away. As starlight is lost in that of the midday sun, so our present knowledge in the light of eternity. I think that's the idea. I don't think Paul is trying to get uh, theological here on the gifts. He's done that, and he's going to do that in chapter 14. He is simply saying here, listen, you need the love, and you're missing the love. These things will go away. And here we'll see how, we, how he progresses along that path. Look at verses 9 and 10. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. I love that Paul includes himself in this. He says, we know, we know in part. We do. The apostles even knew in part. They even prophesied in part. Now, we've looked at the gifts, and we talked about prophecy as the gift of proclaiming. We talked about knowledge, uh, really being able to really understand the deep truths of Scripture. I know people, some people think that prophecy and knowledge are always, you know, uh, you know, revelatory and, and astounding, miraculous uh, gifts. They think they're predictive and, and whatever. And so they'll look at this verse all also and say, well, this is airtight evidence that prophecy is not the same thing as pre uh, preaching or even inspired uh, preaching. Um, well, I don't think that is, is the case at all. I think it ignores all of Scripture. I don't think we know everything. I don't think there's a man on the planet that knows everything, that has all the knowledge and all the prophecy. We, we have knowledge, but in part. Listen, we know what we need to know. I've heard many people say, well, it's not what the Bible says, it's what it doesn't say. Those are those people. Well, it doesn't tell me everything I want to know. You're not going to get everything you want to know. You have what you need to know. That's what it gives us. It gives us true knowledge, but not all knowledge. Listen, let me give you some verses that support this. It's in Christ whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, starting there, okay? It's in him, and we're going to see him face to face. That's where he's going with this. So that's where you'll have all that knowledge. Hang on for it, okay? But let me give you 1 Corinthians 8 too. Okay? He talked about this. We looked at it a while ago. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Let's just start there. What do you say right after that? Knowledge puffs up. Okay? If you think you know, you know nothing. That's what he's saying. Because there was a bunch of people, and they still were there in Corinth saying, well, I know this, and I know this. He says, it's not about what you know. In fact, if you get to that point where you think you know, then you haven't learned anything at all. Right? We don't know anything. Job 11, 7 to 9, can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Can anyone find out the deep things of God? No, that's the answer, right? You can't. 
We can't possibly know everything there is to know about God. We're limited. Psalm 40, verse 5, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Right? I could not possibly understand all of his thoughts and his works and those things. I couldn't even number them. Let me take you to a passage if you want to turn there. It's in Psalm 139, an amazing psalm, by the way. It, and my, my Bible titles it God's Perfect Knowledge of Man, His Perfect Knowledge of You. And uh, this is what it says just in the first six verses, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 1 to 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I would just blew his mind, David, that God would know him in this way. He says, I can't attain that knowledge. So men today, we can't attain that kind of knowledge. We don't have all knowledge. Even Paul said in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Listen, folks, all he is saying here in our passage is that we know and prophesy in part. We have a part knowledge, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Did you notice the rest of that verse? When that which is perfect has come, what is that which is perfect? A lot of debate about what is perfect in this passage and what, what he's talking about in this passage. The word perfect is teleos. It's, it's the word he uses a lot. It's, a, it's end. It could be the end of things. It could be perfect. It could be the maturity, something that has matured to its end. Now, some people say that it refers to the canon of Scripture, okay? When the perfect came, it was this, okay? Some say when the Bible came, the perfect has come. I think there's a couple problems with that. The first of being the Corinthians would never have understood this if that's what Paul meant because nowhere in the letter has he ever referred to uh, scriptural completion of some kind, right? It was just right over their heads. But secondly, if that is true, that when, when Scripture was completed, that's the perfect that has come, then we have been without prophecy and knowledge this whole time. <laughs> so what have we been operating on? We have to have prophecy and knowledge because those are the two most important gifts for proclaiming and interpreting and understanding Scripture. So that can't be. And I think a third reason is in our passage because Paul is going to give two examples in verses 11 and 12 uh, of this, one of which speaks of the perfect being seen face to face speaks of a person, not a, not a thing like the Bible. So I think there's a problem with that. I don't think it's scripture. What is the perfect that has to come? Well, I think Paul speaks about it and gives us clues elsewhere. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're back in Corinthians, now you just go to the right, past 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and you'll be in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. And just look at verses 11 through 13. It's a passage we have looked at many times throughout our study of gifts. But we've just looked at verses 11 and 12, and I want to show you 13, but we'll start in verse 11 again. It says this, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. 
for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we've covered that several times, but look at where it goes in verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there's that word perfect, teleos, again. Now, Paul says here that the gifts are to equip us, they're to edify us, they're to unify us in faith and knowledge, but also so that we might be made perfect. That's the purpose of salvation, that we become perfect, perfected. In fact, Paul's labor on earth was directed to that end. He wanted to see men made perfect. He says it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 to 29. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So listen, perfection is the goal, perfection of of all of us. When's that going to come? Anyone here going to be perfect on earth? I'm glad glad no one wrote, I'm I'm already there. (laughs) Some people do think they are, right? No, perfection comes when we are in the presence of Christ. I think people go on with this perfect and try to get too nitpicky. Oh, is it at the rapture? Is it the second coming? When you're in the presence of Christ, okay? I don't care about what. When you're there, the perfect has come. It's the difference between life on earth, he's saying, and life in heaven. Here you need the gifts. There you don't. Here you need love. There you still will. There will be love. In fact, Paul gives us two amazing examples to illustrate what happens when the perfect has come. He gives us an example of a child becoming a man and then looking in a mirror as opposed to seeing someone face to face. So look at in verse 11, the first example of a child becoming a man. Go back to our passage. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, You know, Paul is asking us to use our imaginations a little bit or uh, try to remember a little bit. Recall how it was that you thought as a child. What's he trying to say here? My wife has done a great job of keeping track of the wonderful, cute things our kids say along the way. And they're color-coded so we know which kid said what. I just wanted to give you examples so you don't have to leap to what Paul is talking about. Don't worry, I did ask permission if I could share these. I'm going to start with Ethan. But we were talking, we were having a conversation about my, uh, Jody's mom had a, uh, a misting hose in the back garden. We were calling it a mister. And so Ethan was confused, and he was trying to find out where the man was in the backyard. Because we kept talking about a mister. Like, ah. Ethan came up with a term of his own because he loved being six years old. And when he was turning seven, he said, mom, I'm age sick. Ethan read an earthquake book about an experiment using a yard stick, and so he went outside and found a stick in the yard. It's a yard stick. How you think as a child, right? Ethan said, I know how to make it snow because he really wanted to snow. I said, how do you, how do you make it snow? Say mean things to the clouds so that they'll cry. Yeah, right? Isn't that how you think as a child, right? How about Ryan. Ryan was caught on the roof with a couple of boys, and we asked him what he was doing on the roof. He says, our thoughts weren't thinking. (laughs) Mm. 
a light bulb went out, and he said, that lamp ran out of light. It just ran out. Oh, better go fill it up. <laughs> we asked Ryan why he was so cute once, and he said, that's my ways. Ryan talked to Jody about the Oreos that he used to wear as a baby. He wanted to know, you know, talk about these Oreos. We're just so confused, Oreos. And after a lengthy description, and he started describing straps, we realized he was talking about overalls, not Oreos. And then Ryan's biblical theology was interesting. He came out of Sunday school one time and said, Dad, I learned today that God has a wife, and she works for Satan. Went and had a conversation with that Sunday school teacher. <laughs> Cambria was, was yawning one time. We said, oh, you're tired. And she said, I'm not tired. I'm just letting my yawns come out. Put it in there. You got to let them out. Mm -hmm. Oh, for Cambria, every bug that exists on the planet is, is, does something to you. So every time she saw a bug, what does that one do to you? What does that one do to you? Because obviously all bugs are bad and they do something to you. It's either good or bad. Many of you know Chris Shepard. Chris Shepard used to come to church here, but she gave Cambria a few acorns, and she explained that the tiniest nut turns into the biggest tree. So Cambria was so excited. This is when we first came, and she was little. She was so excited to plant the acorns in our backyard so she could have a tree house. But she broke into tears when Jody told her that she would not be a child when the tree would be big enough for that. You just come home and plant an acorn, right? You get a tree house. You think as a child. Taden was sick, and his voice was struggling, and he said, Mom, my voice is not working. It came off. <laughs> Ethan asked Taden once if he was a nice boy, and he shook his head no. Then he asked him again if he was mean. He said, no. He said, well, then what are you? And he said, two. <laughs> so if you're two, you're not mean. You're not nice. You're two. Taden asked what sharing was, and he was talking to me, and I said, well, sharing is when Taden has a big plate of food, and Daddy is really hungry, so you give it all to me. And Taden said, no, that's sin. <laughs> I got one more here. I was telling Taden that we're going to be coming with Jesus when he rides in on his white horse, right? And Taden said, wow. That's one big horse. <laughs> this is what Paul's trying to get across. When you are a child, you think as a child. You know, we speak and we understand and think as children spiritually speaking, huh? And I wonder if God just looks at us just like we did to our kids. Say, oh, they're just so cute. They think they know. And he's just writing some of these things down. All of us with our knowledge running around here, I doubt he really thought about that uh, with the Corinthians or about even us when we bicker over theology, spiritual gifts, or how the church should be run, you name it, right? If love is not present when we do those things, right, then, then there's a problem. And it just highlights the fact that really we're children. And, and Paul said that to the Corinthians earlier on, right? They're spiritual babes. They're just so immature, but listen, one day we will become full-grown men and women. And that's what he's saying here. When I, I, was, I spoke and thought and, and I understood things this way, but all that will be done away with. I will be a mature man. Our childishness and our imperfections, our limitations, it will give, give way to immediate, complete, eternal, spiritual adulthood. That will be 
an amazing thing. Here's his second example in verse 12. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Now notice the nows and the thens there. They're important. Now in a mirror dimly, right? Then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we're going to know as we are known. Now, you got to think about the mirrors of the ancient world. They're not mirrors like we have today, right? They would have been polished bronze or metal of some kind, so they would have had a, re- a likeness that would reflect, but it would be unclear. It would be distorted. Um, uh, when you look in a mirror today, we have a pretty clear uh, picture, except when you have those, you turn it over, and it's that, that one that you know, sees into your pores, into your souls, and then you realize, well, I don't, what is that creature? But... <laughs> As believers, when we look into a mirror, metaphorically speaking, like who should we be seeing more and more of when we look at that mirror? We should be seeing more and more of Jesus, right? And that's his idea here. And Paul tells us in Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is is the image that we are being molded into and conformed into, right? That, that That has been predestined by God. I want you all to be a bunch of baby Jesuses. That's what he's trying to do here. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. But when we look in the mirror, is it Jesus we always see? We don't, right? And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This verse is describing what's called progressive sanctification. I don't know if you heard that word, right? But it just means that we are progressively being sanctified, changed into the image. From one level of glory, we're moved into another level of glory, and the Holy Spirit transforms us more and more into the image of Christ. That's the idea. But right now, we see him only in a dim and an unclear way. But we're, we're imperfect, right? But, but it won't be that way in heaven. It's compared to heaven. He says, notice, but then face to face. The now is in the mirror, but then it will be face to face. Oh, I love that. One day, you guys, one day, face to face with your Savior. I mean, think about that. One day, that when that which is perfect has come, that's when it will be. And we'll see him clearly and distinctly. And 1 John 3, 2 tells us this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed face-to-face, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's that day. When that day arrives, right, we will see face-to-face the image we've been hoping to see in that mirror that was dim, right, and obscure. Now it's like we're looking in the mirror. There it is. There's Jesus. Amazing. And when that day arrives also, we're going to cease to know in part. Notice that it says that, right? Now we know in part. We only know things partially and obscurely. Even while we have the, the full revelation of God, right? We have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. All those things, we're still not beyond error, right? We're still not beyond making mistakes. We're still not beyond uh, knowledge or having knowledge. We don't have it all. We don't understand everything. But then Paul says, I shall know just as I also am known. I like that he makes it personal. He's talking about him. Like, I, I, will, I will know just as I, I'm known. That's amazing. What does God know about you? We just read about it a little bit, huh, in Psalm 139? Everything everything. In fact, I want to show you a few more verses from Psalm 139, but I'll just put on a screen for you. Verses 13 to 16. 
For you form my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they are all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Amazing. Amazing to think about this. This is the guy. He knows everything about us. Your frame wasn't hidden from him. He skillfully made you. What's Paul's point here? We will know fully because we'll be in the presence of, of God. We're going to know as we're known. He knows everything about us. We don't know everything about God, but we'll know that day. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says this about this day. All things are dark and confused now compared with what they will be hereafter. They can only be seen as by the reflection in a mirror or in the description of a riddle. But hereafter, our knowledge will be free from all obscurity and error. It is the light of heaven only that will remove all clouds and darkness that hide the face of God from us. Hmm. I love that. Is that what makes you excited about heaven, by the way? Seeing face to face your Lord? It better be. Yes, heaven's going to be great. There's going to be no more death, no more pain. No more sorrow, no more sickness. You'll see loved ones. You'll, you'll walk on streets of gold. But all of those uh, you know, are great, but none of those compare with seeing Jesus face to face. I mean, that is what makes heaven worth waiting for. And I want to remind you about Revelation 22. One of the last things you see about heaven is, is, is that. Revelation 22, 3 to 5. There shall be no more curse, so no more sin, okay? But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. You know, this speaks of the eternal state, right? And listen, in that state, there is no sin, but there's only God. That's the picture we get. We don't even have the picture of loved ones and all these things, and, you know, we just have. God, and you'll see his face. That is what is to make us excited about the hereafter. Um, let me show you one more quote. Charles Spurgeon said this about it. The streets of gold will have small attraction to us. The harps of angels will but slightly enchant us compared with the king in the midst of the throne. He, he it is who shall rivet our gaze, absorb our thoughts, enchain our affection, and move all our sacred passions to their highest pitch of celestial ardor. We shall see Jesus. I love that Spurgeon way of saying things. That is your future. And this is what Paul is trying to say. Listen, there's going to be a day when gifts will, will not matter at all, okay? You're going to see perfection face to face. But the preeminence of love, and this is the whole point here, is the last point. Love will continue on. Verse 13, and now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. I love this about the love chapter, right? He didn't say, Paul didn't say, but miracles and tongues and faith will abide, right? Or power, and he said, these three, faith and hope and love remain. See, Corinthians, you're making a much ado about nothing. Here's what you need to be looking on. Faith, hope, and love. Those are important. In fact, faith, I think, and hope are kind of wrapped into it. And those three spiritual virtues are used quite a bit because they're so important in terms of our, 
our faith here on earth. In the New Testament, Paul used it a couple times. I just want to give you an example as he wrote to the Thessalonians because we, we talked about it in our study. In chapter 1, verse 3, he said, Remembering without ceasing, what's he remember about them? Your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the three there? Boom, boom, boom. And he also told the Colossians that he gave thanks for them because those three spiritual uh, virtues were being manifest among them. In Colossians chapter 1, 3 to 5, he said, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith, there is it, faith in Christ Jesus, and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. I think faith and hope really are encompassed by love, aren't they? Because Paul has already said uh, that love believes all things. There's faith, right? And hopes all things. There's your hope. But the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? A couple thoughts. In heaven, there's no longer to be any need for faith because you're going to see face-to-face your Savior. There'll be no need for hope because the hope of our eternal inheritance will have been realized. You'll be there. But love? Love will continue throughout eternity. All of our eternal state will be an expression of our love for Christ and it will grow throughout eternity. But I think the ultimate reason that love is the greatest is because it's the most like God. God doesn't have faith, right? He's faithful, but he doesn't have faith. He doesn't have faith in himself, right? And he doesn't have hope because he's omniscient. He's complete. But God is love, 1 John 4, 8 tells us, right? So love alone is the sum of perfection in heaven. That's the idea here. So Paul, as he wraps up this chapter, he's which I titled The More Excellent Way, is saying that the, the more excellent way on earth is agape love, right? Because ultimately, love is what connects us to our eternal God. Yeah, these gifts are great, and they're useful for here and now, and they equip us, and they build us up, and those things, but love is forever. That's what he's saying. Love is forever. So what I say for our church is like, if love is the thing that's forever, let's get as much practice in on that as we can. I'm all for the gifts being used, and we should be, and I encourage that, and and we'll continue continue to do it, but love must be present. Let's make sure we're doing it with love, because that's what takes us on into eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Thank you, Lord, for this time you've given us. We thank you for uh, this letter once again, and just the amazing, uh, Lord, truth that you gave to Paul to give to us about love. We can't do anything without love. Many songs have been made about love and uh, the, the impact that love should have on this earth, and Lord, but nothing surpasses the love that you've shown to mankind. Lord, as you died on the cross for our sins, that's amazing love, amazing love. And we're going to sing about the amazing love that our, our king showed for us as he died on that cross. And Lord, it's the love that really should spur us to love one another. And Lord, while we are excited about the gifts that you've given us and the spirit that dwells within us and empowers us and enables to use these gifts, Lord, we must do it with love. Lord, help us to just continually go back to that chapter, to go back to verses 4 to 7 and just quiz ourselves on, on love. How am I showing and modeling agape, agape love? Because that is the, that's the benchmark. That's the model. Lord, help us to Lord strive for that. Because ultimately, Lord, we want to be like Jesus. One day the perfect will come. Face to face we'll see our Christ. And Lord, we look forward to that day. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.